If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. Back between the years 2650 to 2590 BC, the pharaoh Zoser reigned in ancient Egypt. But it's not Zoser whose name we commonly remember today. Rather, it's that of his personal physician, vizier, architect, and priest, Imhotep. If that name sounds familiar to you, that's likely because it's the name used for the mummy in both the 1930s Universal Monster movies as well as the more recent remakes from the 1990s. But the real Imhotep's contributions to Egyptian society were a lot more substantial than just chasing Brendan Fraser around the desert. Imhotep was the earliest known physician in recorded history. He's also responsible for building the first pyramid in Egypt, the Step Pyramid. There are a lot of things about Imhotep that he should probably be known for, but one in particular is his creation of one of the earliest precursors to the modern hospital, a specialized healing sanctuary known as a sleep or dream temple. In these temples, the sick patient was placed into a trance-like sleep, during which priests would perform rituals around the body to interpret the person's dreams, in order to learn about and cure their illness. The concept of the dream temple was something that would be carried over from Egypt to ancient Greece as well. During the 4th and 5th centuries, similar temples were built to worship the god Asclepius, who it was said could heal people while they slept. Temple priests would chant and use magic spells to put the patient into a deep trance state they called incubation. The patient would remain in this incubation state for as long as three days, during which time the priest would continue to perform mystic rituals and offer suggestions to the sleeping individual that they would feel better upon waking. It was sort of like taking NyQuil with someone chanting in the background. The idea that you could enter a trance state and will away your troubles is something that can be seen in many other cultures, including the ancient Hebrews, the Romans, and the Hindus of India. In 1027, a Persian psychologist and physician named Avicenna published the Book of Healing, in which he declared that there was a distinct difference between falling asleep and falling into a trance. He even wrote that during a trance, a person was open to suggestions that they would then obey upon waking. For centuries during the Middle Ages, many kings and princes were believed to have a royal touch for healing the sick. These were supposed divine powers that were granted to them because of their royal lineage. During the 15th and 16th centuries, the Swiss physician Paracelsus began using magnets for healing rather than relying on the royal touch. 
No one really knew how magnets worked exactly. Just that they emitted a powerful force that some physicians came to believe could heal people. This was a belief that remained in practice well into the 18th century. During this era, a Jesuit priest and royal astronomer in Vienna named Maximilian Hell became famous for using magnetized steel plates on the body. One of Hell's students, a man named Franz Anton Mesmer, would go on to make a name for himself, a name that would live on long after he was gone. He was an Austrian physician who soon realized that after slicing open a patient's vein and letting the person bleed for a while, he could pass a magnet over the open wound, and it appeared that an active force would actually make the bleeding stop. Mesmer soon realized he didn't even need the magnet to get the same result, and could do so just by passing a stick over the wound. This was, in truth, really just blood clotting in action, but Mesmer didn't know that. In fact, Mesmer never really understood the very phenomenon that he would go on to make famous. Mesmer incorrectly deduced that he was able to induce a trance state in people because of his ability to manipulate an invisible magnetic force in the air. During his lifetime, Mesmer had quite a few supporters and more than a few detractors. He was actually a patron of young Mozart, and would often entertain crowds wearing a purple robe and playing a glass harmonica while waving an iron wand. By and large, the scientific establishment roundly dismissed Mesmer. In 1784, a royal commission of nine scientists, including Ben Franklin, investigated Mesmer's claims and declared him to be a fraud. It turns out Mesmer's patients only responded when they believed they had been magnetized, which led the commission to determine these individuals had deluded themselves into believing they were being cured of what ailed them. The commission's report disgraced Mesmer's reputation, and he died penniless in Switzerland in 1815. But that didn't put an end to Mesmer's research. Despite his public disgrace, there remained a loyal set of disciples who carried on his work, and even renamed his magnetism after the man himself, calling it Mesmerism. The term Mesmerism has stuck around even until today. But by now, we more commonly refer to these techniques of putting people into a trance as hypnosis. Hypnosis remains a pretty controversial subject throughout the scientific community. There are plenty of people in the world who are skeptical about how, or even if, hypnosis works. But believers in the power of hypnosis are convinced that it is possible to manipulate a person's behavior while they're in a trance. The question remains, though, just how far can you get a hypnotized patient to go? Some people have suggested that under the right circumstances, you can hypnotize a person to do whatever you want, even commit murder. I'm Nate Hale, and you're all getting very sleepy. And this is The Conspirators. As Franz Mesmer departed from the scene, this actually opened the door to a more scientific approach to studying hypnosis. One of Mesmer's true believers, a French nobleman named Marquis de Puisiger, began hypnotizing local peasants on his estate. He soon determined that the subjects he put under readily responded to suggestion and had no recollection of events upon waking. Although the Count always maintained that his techniques were the result of magnetism, it was a Portuguese priest named José Custodio de Faria who determined that hypnosis was actually more akin to lucid sleep 
and that it was during this state the subject was susceptible to suggestion. It was actually a Scottish ophthalmologist named James Braid who coined the term neurohypnotism back in the 19th century. A phrase that translates to nervous sleep. The word hypnosis is actually derived from the Greek words hypnos, meaning sleep, and osis, meaning to put to sleep. James Braid began to take hypnosis seriously after witnessing a demonstration in 1841 by a French magnetist named La Fontaine. Braid didn't like the showman atmosphere that surrounded La Fontaine's act. Rather, he thought that these principles could be developed for more practical and scientific uses. Braid came up with the term hypnosis as a way of trying to change mesmerism's image from that of a carnival sideshow act into a practical science. But despite his efforts, a lot of people today still think of hypnotism as nothing more than a trick performed by stage magicians. Back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, popular culture would help shape the public's perception of the mysterious power of hypnotism. The 1894 novel Trilby by George de Maurier contained a character named Svengali, a powerful hypnotist who uses his abilities on the beautiful but untalented heroine to make her a famous singer. The 1919 silent film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari involves a mad doctor who keeps a mesmerized wretch in his cabinet in order to unleash him periodically to commit murders. But even with these negative portrayals, by the early 1900s, there were still some members of the psychiatric community who had come to believe hypnotism could be used both to heal the mentally ill and as a powerful tool in law enforcement. In 1901, a Wisconsin farmer's son named Milton Erickson became totally paralyzed by polio at age 17. He seemed destined to spend the remainder of his life strapped to a rocking chair. But over time, Erickson began to develop his own techniques for self-hypnosis that gradually allowed him to will his body to move. It began small, with just a twitch of his fingertips. But within less than a year, his self-hypnotic trances had allowed him to dig deep into his mind and recall what it was like to make his body move. Within less than a year, he was walking on crutches, and in time, he wouldn't even need those to get around anymore. Erickson went on to become a psychiatrist, and he was one of the earliest practitioners in the field of hypnotherapy. In 1958, the American Medical Association endorsed the use of hypnosis to control pain in patients, such as burn victims and cancer patients. Over time, hypnosis would also begin to be used in court cases, allowing eyewitnesses to recall forgotten details about crimes. In 1987, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that defendants may introduce as evidence remarks they had made under hypnosis. But despite some of the mainstream acceptance of hypnosis, there are still plenty of skeptics who don't believe it works at all. I'm sure a lot of you have seen demonstrations where a stage hypnotist makes someone quack like a duck or jump around like a gorilla. Some skeptics say hypnosis actually works based on what is called the social cognitive theory, in which you're encouraged to do outrageous things with no consequence. This isn't to say that the hypnotized person is faking exactly. It's just they believe all social pressures are temporarily removed allowing them to act in ways that are contrary to public norms. This leads them to play along with whatever it is the hypnotist wants them to do. Some scientists think that the key to hypnosis is what's called the dissociation theory. Basically, this refers to the idea that you have two states of consciousness, 
your everyday thinking, and a secondary state that acts like an observer in the back of your mind. This observer rarely takes action, and usually just sits back and enjoys the ride. Under hypnosis, these states become flipped around and the observer takes control while your active mind takes the back seat. It's commonly believed among modern psychologists that a person in a trance can't be commanded to do anything they wouldn't normally do while awake. And although hypnosis has been used to help someone quit smoking or lose weight, those are both things the participant actively wanted to do before allowing themselves to be hypnotized. In other words, they went into the appointment wanting to quit smoking so they willed themselves to actually do it. The real question, then, is can you compel someone to do something they wouldn't want to do? The answer to that is a little trickier to determine. There are a number of hypnotists who insist the skeptics have it all wrong. With the right conditioning, they say, you can convince someone to do practically anything, even commit murder. Throughout history, there have been numerous cases of unusual deaths and, yes, even murders that have been tied to hypnosis. More than a century ago, the Journal of the American Medical Association published an article about what is believed to be the first person to ever die while under hypnosis. Back on September 17, 1894, a man named Newcomb went to visit a 23-year-old clairvoyant named Ella Salomon in her uncle's home in Tuzer, Upper Hungary. Newcomb's brother developed a mysterious illness that made him weak and caused him to cough up blood. Doctors were unable to determine whether the blood was coming from the man's lungs or his stomach. Considering the era this event occurred, and based on the symptoms, I'd like to offer my very inexpert medical opinion that the man was probably suffering from tuberculosis. But doctors back then weren't able to come up with a reason for the man's ailment. Newcomb was desperate to save his brother's life, which would eventually lead him to consult the psychic. Ella Solomon didn't necessarily have the answer either, not while she was awake at least. But as it turns out, Newcomb was an amateur hypnotist, and he got the young woman to agree to allow herself to be hypnotized by him, in the hope that she would then be able to commune with the spirits and give a proper diagnosis. Once she was under, the first question Newcomb asked was if his brother would die. Ella responded by telling him to be prepared for the worse. Then, suddenly... The young woman gave out a short cry, collapsed to the floor, and died. No cause of death was ever determined for Ella Solomon, aside from some vague suggestion that her body wasn't able to take the stress brought on by her hypnotic state. So how strong is the power of suggestion? Pretty powerful if you ask some people. Susan Atkins, one of Charles Manson's followers, claimed that Charlie had cast a sort of hypnotic spell on her, that caused her to participate in the heinous acts she committed. This excuse isn't anything new, either. Criminals have been using hypnosis as an excuse for their actions dating back centuries. In Sumner County, Kansas, back in 1894, a wealthy farmer named Anderson Gray was embroiled in a lawsuit. One of the key witnesses in the case was his neighbor, Thomas Patton. Anderson Gray knew that in order to make the case go away, he needed to first permanently silence Patton. But he didn't want to do the deed himself. Gray went to see his farmhand, Thomas McDonald, and told him that Patton was spreading rumors about McDonald's wife. McDonald rushed off in a huff to confront Patton. Gray hoped the pair would fight to the death, but after McDonald returned home without killing Patton, Gray took his plan up a notch. 
He placed McDonald under hypnosis and planted the suggestion in him that he needed to kill Patton or else Patton was going to kill him first. According to court records, Gray even hypnotized the man into becoming a crack shot with a rifle, whereas before he couldn't hit the side of a barn. Gray then sent McDonald on his way, rifle in hand, and told him where he could find Patton. McDonald lie and wait until Patton rode by on his horse, then he shot and killed him. Both Gray and McDonald were arrested for Patton's murder. Gray was found guilty first and sentenced to hang. But McDonald's attorney told the jury his client had been hypnotized before he committed the crime and therefore could not be held legally responsible. And the jury bought it. McDonald was acquitted of all charges. Keep in mind, not all cases where a person tries to use hypnosis as a defense in court have worked. Georges-Gilles de la Tourette is the famous French neurologist for whom Tourette's syndrome is named. On the evening of December 6th, 1893, Tourette was walking home from the Paris hospital where he worked. When a woman stepped out of the shadows near his home and asked for money. The woman was a former patient named Rose Camper, and Tourette had hypnotized her once during a therapy session. Tourette refused to give her any money, and when the doctor turned away toward his front door, the woman took out a pistol and shot him in the back of the head. Miraculously, Tourette survived with only minor injuries. Doctors later diagnosed Rose Camper as being clinically insane, brought on by the hypnosis. Interestingly, this isn't the only brush with murder involving hypnosis Tourette was involved with. Tourette actually began experimenting with hypnosis after hearing several tales of criminals who were attempting to escape justice by claiming to have committed their illegal deeds while in a trance. Tourette was skeptical of these claims, but he wanted to see for himself if it was possible to convince someone to commit murder while under hypnosis. So he hypnotized a patient named Blanche and showed her a glass of supposedly poisoned beer. Then he instructed Blanche to give the poison to another man to drink. Blanche happily complied and even planted a kiss on the man's lips as she gave him the glass. The man, who was part of the experiment, drank the glass of beer, then pretended to die. When Blanche was brought back out of her trance, she claimed to have no memory of what she had done. Another case out of 19th century Paris involved a man named Augustine Gouff. Gouff was known throughout his community as a serious ladies' man. On a summer day in 1889, Gouff was walking through town when he bumped into another man named Michael Arod and his lover, Gabriel Bompard. The couple knew about Gouff's many sexual exploits, as well as the fact that he was also very rich. This chance encounter would lead Arod to concoct an elaborate murder and robbery scheme involving Goof. Arod invited Goof to Bompard's apartment, claiming that Bompard wanted to experience his skills as a lover for herself. When he arrived, Bompard seduced Goof, while Arod waited behind a curtain. Above the curtain, there was a metal hook with a rope threaded through it. Bompard playfully wrapped a scarf around Goof's neck, and then, without him noticing, attach one end of the scarf to the rope. That was when Arod yanked on the rope, choking Goof to death. They dumped Goof's body on a riverbank several miles south of the city, but police were still soon able to zero in on Arod as a suspect and arrested him. Later, Bompard turned herself into the police as well, although she insisted that Arod had hypnotized her into participating in the murder. 
At least in this case, the jury didn't buy it, and she was sentenced to 20 years in prison, while Ayrod was executed by guillotine. In 1927, a 17-year-old German girl who was only ever identified as Ms. E was traveling by train from her rural home to Heidelberg. She ended up sharing a train compartment with a man who identified himself as a physician named Dr. Bergen. In reality, he was a con man and two-bit criminal named Walker. He was also an amateur hypnotist, and a pretty good one as well, because by the time the train stopped at the next station, Ms. E claimed to have fallen completely under the man's spell. This was an ordeal that would continue for Ms. E for seven more years. Not only did Bergen swindle Ms. E out of hundreds of dollars, he allegedly hypnotized her into having sex with him and several of his friends as well. Three years into this bizarre relationship, Ms. E got married to a public official in Heidelberg, who began to notice the money his wife kept pulling from their accounts without explanation. He got the police involved, which led Dr. Bergen to hatch another scheme to convince Ms. E to murder her husband. The trouble was, Ms. E wasn't exactly a seasoned criminal, and although she reportedly tried half a dozen times to kill her husband, she failed on each occasion. She tried poisoning him, cutting his motorcycle brakes, and even firing a gun at him, but none of these attempts resulted in the man's death. Bergen even tried to order Ms. E to commit suicide on several occasions, but each of those attempts failed as well. Ms. E would eventually go on to see a second hypnotist who worked for years to deprogram her. Bergen was arrested and sentenced to 12 years of hard labor. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. One of the strangest and most violent murder cases that involved hypnosis as a defense occurred in Los Angeles in 1948. Jerome and Betty Ferrari were a married couple living in Hancock Park. Jerome was a wife-beater and a philanderer, and was often known to bring other women home with him right in front of Betty. On one such occasion, Jerome came home with a young model on his arm. This time, Betty was waiting for him with a pipe wrench, which she used to chase her husband out of the house. Their handyman, Alan Adron, rushed to Betty's defense, as did their neighbor, a local gangster named Charles Fauci. Fauci handed Adron a gun. When Jerome tried to force his way back into the home, Adron shot him twice. Then the gun jammed, so Betty finished her husband off by hacking his skull into pieces with a meat cleaver. The really strange thing is that despite all three of them being arrested while standing over Jerome's body drenched in the man's blood, they were all found not guilty of murder. Betty and Charles Fauci were both acquitted outright after testifying about Jerome's violent temper. At first, Adron pled guilty to shooting Jerome, 
but was later found not guilty by reason of insanity. After his attorney successfully argued that he had been hypnotized by Fauci the moment he put the gun in his hands. Adron never even had to go to a psychiatric hospital because the court considered him sane once again after the shooting was over. A similar argument was used in the case of Paul Wickman Hardrup in 1951. Hardrup attempted to rob a Copenhagen bank, shooting and killing bank employees Hans Wisborn and Kaj Moller in the process. After Hardrup was arrested, he made the unusual claim that he could not be held responsible for the shooting because he had been hypnotized in prison by his old cellmate, Bjorn Schau Nielsen. According to Hardrup, Nielsen had hypnotized him several times over a three-month period and instructed him how to commit the robbery. Hardrup told the police that Nielsen had instructed him to ask the teller for money. If the teller didn't comply, he was to take out a gun and start shooting. Hardrup even confessed to an earlier robbery in which he turned over all the money to Nielsen. Nielsen was arrested and given life imprisonment for planning the robberies, but Hardrup was instead committed to a mental institution. Both men were released after 18 years. Sometimes the cases of crimes involving hypnosis aren't so cut and dried as one person instructing another person to go out and do something wrong. Sometimes it seems like the power of suggestion is so powerful, it can have terrible and deadly consequences all on its own. In 1938, a pregnant 23-year-old woman named Marie Columbos read an article about a woman who had given birth painlessly while under hypnosis. She was intrigued, so she contacted the man who had actually done the hypnotizing a vaudeville performer named Robert Gilbert, a.k.a. The Great Gilbert. He agreed to meet with her and went to her home on June 30th for a practice session. Sometime later, the police were summoned to the house. Something had gone terribly wrong. Police discovered Marie Columbos dead on the couch with her arms folded neatly over her chest and a faint smile on her lips. Gilbert claimed that he hadn't done anything to the young woman and that she had simply collapsed and died right after he put her to sleep. Then he picked up her dead body and moved it onto the couch. It all sounded pretty fishy to the police, so Gilbert was arrested. An autopsy was conducted, but the coroner could not determine a cause of death. Marie was just dead. Gilbert went on trial for her murder, and although he claimed his hypnosis was harmless, he was still convicted and sentenced to two to five years in prison. Eventually, that conviction was overturned for lack of evidence. Something similar played out again decades later in Lancashire, England. In September 1993, a 24-year-old woman named Sharon Tayburn went to see a hypnotist named Andrew Vincent perform at a local pub. Vincent picked Sharon out of the audience and he put her into a trance and went through his standard routine of making her perform tricks and getting a good laugh out of everyone. When it came time to wake Sharon, he told her she would feel a 10,000-volt electric shock that would jolt her back into consciousness. Sharon snapped to attention like she jabbed a fork into a light socket. She then left the pub a little while later with no memory of what had gone on while she was in the hypnotic state. On the way home, Sharon began to complain that she felt dizzy. She went to bed, but that night she choked to death on her own vomit while she was asleep. Now it's true that Sharon had been drinking that evening, but according to published reports, not enough to put a healthy 24-year-old woman in any danger. Her death was ruled an accident, although Sharon's mother believed otherwise. She hired a lawyer who argued that Sharon's death was the hypnotist's fault. 
And although they tried to lobby some British ministers to put an end to public hypnosis shows, nothing ever came of it. Another disturbing incident occurred in the spring of 2001 when a surprising number of students at a Northport, Florida high school began dying under unusual circumstances in a very short period of time. The first to die was 16-year-old Marcus Freeman, a star athlete who was set to become the school football team's starting quarterback. His girlfriend recalled a strange look on the young man's face as he drove home from a dentist appointment, right before he veered off the expressway and crashed the car. Not long after, on April 8th, the body of a 16-year-old student named Wesley McKinley, who went to the same high school, committed suicide by hanging himself outside his home. Just a month later, yet another student, 17-year-old Brittany Palumbo, was also found dead. She had hung herself in her bedroom closet. When investigators looked further into these three suspicious deaths, it was revealed that they all had something in common. It turns out, they had all been hypnotized by the school's principal, George Kenny. In fact, Kenny told police he'd hypnotized as many as 75 of the students to help them out with their problems. In the case of Marcus Freeman, he had instructed the boy how to put himself into a self-hypnotic trance in order to deal with the pain from his sports injuries. It's possible that on his drive home from the dentist, Marcus put himself into this state in order to deal with his tooth pain. Wesley McKinley was a talented guitarist. Principal Kenny hypnotized the boy the day before he committed suicide in order to help him get into the Juilliard School of the Arts. In the case of Brittany Palumbo, he hypnotized her to help her with her test scores. In June 2012, Kenny was forced to resign. He was given a year's probation for practicing hypnosis without a proper license. The school board settled lawsuits with each of the families, giving them each $200,000. Stories of the potential power of hypnosis did not escape the United States government. During the 1950s and 1960s, the U.S. intelligence community ran a program that's become the stuff of conspiracy legend, Project MKUltra. On a future episode, I'm going to get into more details on the history of Project MKUltra. But in short, the program involved a number of covert experiments conducted in laboratories and universities across the country, whose primary focus was to determine the use of hypnosis and hallucinogenic drugs such as LSD and the use of intelligence gathering. In some of the most extreme stories that were revealed during government oversight hearings in the late 1970s, some of these experiments involved the CIA trying to create a programmed Manchurian candidate-style assassin using hypnosis and brainwashing. I know, it sounds like the stuff of science fiction or spy movies. In fact, the phrase Manchurian Candidate is actually taken from the title of a thriller by Richard Condon about a brainwashed presidential assassin. Condon got the idea for the book after talking to a CIA agent about some very real concerns they had about a number of U.S. soldiers who came back from the Korean War with no memory of their time spent in a certain area of Manchuria. Concerns that the communists may have wiped the minds of these soldiers and hypnotized them into becoming unwitting spies spurred on the CIA's own MKUltra program. In 1951, a hypnotist told the CIA that he had used his powers to seduce a number of young women. This would lead them to consider the possibility that they may be able to mentally condition an unknowing individual to spy for them, and perhaps even commit assassinations. Records from 1954 tell of one disturbing experiment in which a couple of secretaries were asked to stay late one night to work overtime. Both women were hypnotized. 
One of them was made to fall deep asleep and instructed not to wake up. The other woman was told that she needed to wake the woman up and that she would grow increasingly angry the longer she wasn't able to. They then instructed her that if she couldn't wake the other woman up, she would just have to shoot her. They put an unloaded pistol in the woman's hand, and she actually put it to the other woman's head and pulled the trigger before falling into a deep sleep herself. Upon waking, neither subject remembered what had just occurred. This experiment seems to fly right in the face of the belief that you can't make a hypnotized person do something that they wouldn't normally do while awake. And this was just one experiment spent during a single evening. Imagine what else could be possible with more time and constant conditioning of the subject. There is one particular case that some people have speculated over the years may have been a direct result of such government experiments. It was just after midnight on June 5, 1968 in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Robert F. Kennedy had just learned he had won the South Dakota and California primaries, and his path to becoming the President of the United States seemed all that much clearer. He spoke to journalists and campaign workers at a live televised celebration in the hotel ballroom. It was originally planned that after Kennedy gave his victory speech, he would head to a second gathering of supporters and speak to them as well. But that was changed at the last minute, and after speaking for a short while, Kennedy was ushered away from the podium through a kitchen hallway. A 24-year-old immigrant named Sirhan Sirhan was there waiting for him. Sirhan stepped out from behind a shelving rack and took out his 8-shot, 22 caliber Ivor Johnson cadet revolver and opened fire. Robert Kennedy fell to the floor. Immediately, Kennedy's bodyguards and some of the other people around him pounced on the shooter. They forced the man against a steam table and tried to pry the gun from his hands. Sirhan kept squeezing the trigger even after all the bullets were out of the gun. Five other people were wounded in addition to Kennedy. Robert Kennedy was shot three times, once banned his right ear, with the other two bullets entering near the rear of his right armpit. Kennedy was rushed to the hospital, but despite medical efforts, the man died 26 hours later. The fact that Sirhan Sirhan was there with a pistol has never been in doubt. Sirhan was convicted of the assassination and originally sentenced to death, but his death sentence was commuted to life in prison with the possibility of parole after California invalidated all death sentences in 1972. He has been denied parole 15 times so far. Sirhan Sirhan is a Palestinian immigrant with Jordanian citizenship. Officially, Sirhan's motive for killing Kennedy was because of the candidate's support for Israel, and specifically because of his attempt to send 50 fighter jets to Israel. But people who believe there was a deeper conspiracy involved in the shooting think that Sirhan may have been a programmed assassin and that he didn't act alone. Many eyewitnesses who saw Sirhan that night have commented about his glassy-eyed stare and oddly calm demeanor, even during the actual shooting. Sirhan has always claimed he has no actual recollection of the assassination. A notebook that was found among his personal effects included several scrawled anti-Kennedy statements, including RFK must die. Immediately after the shooting, a now infamous and still unidentified young woman in a black and white polka dot dress was seen running away from the Ambassador Hotel shouting, We killed Kennedy. Some witnesses claim to have seen the same woman with Sirhan Sirhan immediately before the shooting. Sirhan's attorneys believe that their client was hypnotized and programmed into shooting Kennedy. They hired their own expert to attempt to hypnotize Sirhan, and he was astounded to see how easily Sirhan fell into a trance. 
While under hypnosis, Sirhan described meeting the girl in the polka dot dress, who led him toward a large silver coffee urn behind the platform where Kennedy was speaking. From there, the woman directed him over toward the pantry. Sirhan thought the girl was attractive, and he tried to hit on her. As the woman spoke to him, Sirhan began to feel sleepy. Then the woman touched him and told him to look down the hallway. The next thing Sirhan claimed to remember was a flashback to a time when he was back at the shooting range firing his pistol at a target. The idea that Sirhan Sirhan could have been programmed through hypnosis sounds preposterous, of course. Even the expert hypnotist Sirhan's lawyers brought in needed to see for himself if it was really possible to compel the man to obey his commands. He told Sirhan that when he woke up he would begin to act like a monkey when he took out his handkerchief. He woke Sirhan up from his trance, and as soon as he whipped out his handkerchief, Sirhan began to climb the bars of his cell. In 2006, a documentary filmmaker working for the BBC was told by former colleagues and associates that three men who showed up in films and photographs from that night were known CIA operatives, including George Joannides, the chief of the agency's psychological warfare operations. Some researchers think they may have even identified the mysterious girl in the polka dot dress as a woman named Elaine Neal. Several witnesses chose Neal's photo out of a lineup as being the woman they saw in the Ambassador Hotel that night. It turns out Elaine Neal's former husband, Jerry Capehart, used to work for the CIA during the 1960s. And what did Jerry Capehart do for the CIA? Well, it was on his deathbed that he made a startling revelation. As he lay there dying, he told his son that he worked for the CIA's mind control program. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. If you want to hear more about Robert Kennedy's assassination, then I can't recommend highly enough the excellent podcast, The RFK Tapes. On an upcoming episode, I'm going to delve deeper into the history of the MK Ultra program and some of the other bizarre experiments they were involved in. I have a bunch of new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Brandy, Jay, Ann, Damian, and Michael. You're all awesome. I want to remind you that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our patron-exclusive bonus mini-episodes. We also have a donate button on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. That also happens to be one of the many places where you can find our show. I always ask that if possible you subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's free to you, but it really helps us out by raising us on Apple's charts. We're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.